Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Ode on the death of a favorite cat drowned in a tub of goldfishes by Thomas Gray. Uh, this is first published in 1747. And uh, I found it through a kid's magazine out of the UK that somebody had scanned called Finding Out, which is a wonderful, wonderful magazine that n- nobody really gets to see anymore unless they're me. Um, uh, volume 16, number 3 from 1966 had this poem, but it abridged the title. Uh, Ode on the Death of a Favorite Cat was the title. And they also abridged the, the poem itself. They left out the fourth stanza. Um, so I was just reading the poem and I said, oh, this is a fun poem. Um, I wonder when it was published. And uh, I hadn't heard of Thomas Gray before this, but it turns out he, uh, he didn't write a ton of poems. But um, he got he got the inspiration to write this poem uh, after his friend uh, Horace Walpole, famous uh, for to us as the author of uh, the Castle of Otranto, or Tranto, yeah, I guess that's how it's pronounced. Otranto. 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 Yeah. O T. Um, right. Uh, it's O R T R A N T O. I don't. Yeah. I'm I'm not read this book, but I hear it's the first Gothic novel, so I kind of want to read it. Um, I have. It is. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I investigated that, and we know a lot about Horace Walpole because he wrote a lot of letters. One of them was to his friend Thomas Gray, who he actually made his uh, heir uh, when they went on a trip. Uh, all my possessions will be yours if I die on this trip. Um, he didn't get to pass on the, his title or anything, but he didn't die. Um, and it turns out uh, he had a lot of pets, including uh, some cats and some goldfishes. And he also had a squirrel, <laughs> at least one squirrel. I'm sorry, the he you're talking about now is Gray or Walpole? Or Walpole. Walpole. Okay. And uh, what happened was um, some of two of uh, Walpole's cats died in. Uh, trying to get at some goldfishes he also had. Um, and so when he wrote this as a letter to Thomas Gray, Gray took the first incident with the cat named Salima and wrote a poem that described what happened, except it's kind of a little bit exaggerated or strange. Um, and, uh, I think we should read it and then maybe come back and talk about what's happening in it because it, it is from a long time ago and the language is a little bit odd, but I think it's pretty funny and interesting. A couple of quick things I want to ask and I want to, want to ask one to say, when I did a little bit of background research on this, I came up with a publication date of 1747. Mm-hmm. Now, how did, how did you get 48 and did I just get that wrong? I'm no, willing to I, believe it. I think I said 47. If not, that's what my notes say. Um, however, we're reading it actually out of a later publication uh, in 1798, except we're not even sure that it was a publication. It was a William Blake illustrated version taking the text from the 1747 and 
illustrating it in William Blake's very distinctive style. Uh, every um, every page has multiple uh, illustrations or multiple images on it, and uh, there's even a handwritten sort of table of contents for each of the images matching each of the lines in particular. So we do recommend everybody have a look at the actual art that goes along with this poem because it's quite delightful and interesting. And, and, it's, uh, and it's revelatory. I mean, it, it makes yeah. some suggestions about how to interpret this poem. Indeed, and it's not the interpretation that uh, whoever did the illustration for Finding Out from 1966 did. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, William Blake is, um, he's a phenomenon. So uh, him taking yes. this this poem, which seems very modest when you first approach it, and uh, approaching it the way he does, it changes things up. And um, the other thing that I wanted to say, which uh, apparently wouldn't work for your education, so maybe your generation or Canada or... Or maybe I just had weird parents, but um, although Gray didn't write a lot, he is quite important for a number of reasons. Um, one of which is that he is a a clear example of proto-romanticism. Mm, yeah. Romanticism begins in 1798 with the publication of Wordsworth and Coleridge's Lyrical Ballads. We need to look earlier to see what that's coming from. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Gray is publishing in uh, the 1740s and 50s um, is among a group sometimes called graveyard poets who um, already give us what the romantics give us, a, a focus on the individual and the individual's feelings and responses to the world around him or her, uh, significance of nature and so on. Um, even as a, as a 10-year-old, I knew there was something called Gray's Elegy. Um, it turns out this is one of the most famous poems in English. It is more completely elegy written in a country churchyard. Oh, yeah, I know that one. I didn't know that was by and, him, though. <laughs> that's by, Exactly, exactly. And that's Thomas Gray, okay. from which we get, among other things, the line uh, as, as the speaker sits and contemplates um, the, the graveyard. I, by the way, visited that very graveyard. Um, he looks at these people whose names mean nothing to him, and he wonders, had life been different, what they would have been? He calls them these mute, inglorious Miltons. Ah. Um, so he's. that's a very famous line, and it gives us an idea of Gray is trying to think of what else is going on, what opportunities have been missed, what are people thinking of inside themselves. But, as, as you said, this is a poem from four years before Gray's Elegy. So uh, if that didn't divert us too badly, I think many people, as you, would have known that's, that poem. And this is a very uh, at either different or complimentary uh, side of Gray. I agree. Shall I, we go? I, I, yeah, I agree. Um I think um, what my understanding is that this is not super representative of the majority of his work. Um, not that there's that much. I think there's like 12 poems or something in total. Um, so, yeah. It, we're going to argue about what it represents when we're done. Sure. Okay? Would you read it for us? And then uh, we'll Gladly. focus on some details. 
ode on the death of a favorite cat drowned in a tub of goldfishes. Twas on a lofty vase's side where China's gayest art had dyed the azure flowers that blow, demurest of the tabby kind, the pensive Selima reclined, gazed on the lake below. Her conscious tale, her joy declared, the fair round face, the snowy beard, the velvet of her paws, her coat that with the tortoise vies, her ears of jet and emerald eyes, she saw and purred applause. Still had she gazed, but midst the tide, two angel forms were seen to glide, the genie of the stream. Their scaly armor's Tyrian hue, through richest purple to the view, betrayed a golden gleam. The hapless nymph with wonder saw a whisker first and then a claw. With many an ardent wish, she stretched in vain to reach the prize. What female heart can gold despise? What cats averse to fish? Presumptuous maid, with looks intent, again she stretched, again she bent, nor knew the gulf between. Malignant fate sat by and smiled. The slippery verge her feet beguiled, she tumbled headlong in. Eight times emerging from the flood, she mewed to every watery god some speedy aid to send. No dolphin came, no nereids stirred, nor cruel Tom nor Susan heard. A favorite has no friend. From hence, ye beauties, undeceived, know one false step is ne'er retrieved, and be with caution bold. Not all that tempts your wandering eyes and heedless hearts is lawful prize, nor all that glisters gold. I, I can't help but read this as uh, humorous even though it is kind of cruel, um, even though it's not anything that the author has done. The poet has not caused the death of this cat. Um, but he is kind of reveling in the um, lessons that can be drawn from, <laughs> from mm. being uh, a favored cat who always gets what, you, what it wants. And... Um, one of the most striking things about it, I think, for many people, would probably be that which struck me at the end there. Um, I'll just read the last stanza again. From hence ye, be ye beauties, undeceived, no one false step is ne'er retrieved, and be with caution bold. Not all that tempts your wandering eyes and heedless hearts is lawful prize, nor all that glisters gold. So um, I recognize that last line from uh the lord of the rings um and uh the what's a poem called the riddle of strider uh the character turns out to be aragorn in the first book of the lord of the rings uh there's a little riddle or poem that goes with uh strider the character and i'll read that and then uh, you can see the connection. It's not original to, um, e apparently, either Tolkien or Grey, but rather they're both working the same mind here. Uh, all that is gold does not glitter, nor all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots 
are not reached by the frost. From ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. So um, there's actually two things in here that are from this poem, and I, I think it's just evidence that uh, Tolkien, who was you know a well-read man, was <laughs> particularly lifting from this poem, and uh, and I'll give it here. Uh, it's the last line is not nor all that glisters gold. So today most people don't know glister. It's glisten is kind of a related word. All that glitters, uh, all that is gold does not glitter. He sort of reversed it there, but actually the phrase "not all" uh, is in both uh, poems and in similar proximity. So to me, I think this is Tolkien doing what he did, which is appreciating uh, great literature and then doing that himself. He's got a another um, similar line in The Hobbit uh, in Riddles in the Dark where uh, he has a contest between Gollum and Fro- uh, not Frodo, it's uh, Bilbo uh, throwing riddles back and forth at each other um, and one of them goes, I'm going by memory here, alive without breath, as cold as death, never uh, drinking, always thirsty, uh, uh, dressed in mail, something, something. <laughs> the dressed in mail part, uh, That's the, it, it turns out that this is a fish, right? It's The riddle is the answer is a fish. And we've got the fish here dressed in mail, right? Um, it, it, and the, the uh, cat seems to be um, armored as well, in a certain sense. So, uh, Tolkien totally read this poem, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and he's uh, yes. responding to it. But this poem works on its own, and I think we should talk more about some of that stuff, too. Uh, okay. What did you want to say about that? Well, um, I think it's, it's really important... To see, he's 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 putting a silly moral at the end. It's like uh, that last line um, from hence ye beauties. He's it's like he's telling children, young children, don't take things that don't belong to you, lest you be killed, right? Um, and so we ta- we take this lesson. Twas on the lofty vases side where China's gayest art had died. So. Ha ha ha. D-Y-E-D. Uh, the azure flowers that blow, demurest of the tabby kind, the pensive Selima recline. I think it's Selima. Could be. Gazed of course, it's on... iambic pentameter. Ah, I see, yes. Oh, oh, by the way, that other poem is the same. Uh, the Tolkien is the same uh-huh. meter. Uh, gazed on the lake below. So it's not a lake, right? But he's hyperbolizing it into a lake. It's it's a, like a bowl right? or a vase. I, I don't think so. I think Blake has it wrong there. The first line is, "'Twas on a lofty vase's side." If you think of um, how people used to decorate their halls, those with the sufficient means, with Ming vases yes. that were perhaps four or five feet tall. Oh, absolutely. And then there'd be a, a table next to them. So I'm picturing the cat on the table looking down into this lake 
which happens to have a couple of goldfish in it. Uh-huh. Um, but, but it's, it's not a lake. transparent. No, it's not a lake. That's obviously uh, not, not literally true that it's a lake. But for the size of the cat, it turns out to be a lake because the cat, in fact, can drown in it. Yes. The cat can't reach the bottom. Right. Or, or she wouldn't have drowned. So, and as you said, dyed is a pun. It's spelled, you know, the, the colors have been dyed, mm-hmm. but this is premonitory. There's going to be a dying coming on. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is actually quite a serious poem. And I think one of the things that makes it so nice is that it's a serious poem that seems to be playful. Oh, it's very playful. And the, the descriptions are wonderful. The next stanza, her conscious tale. Her joy declared. Yes. Uh, the fair round face, the snowy beard. <laughs> um, right. The velvet of her paws. Her coat that with the tortoise vies. Her ears of jet and emerald eyes. She saw and purred applause. <laughs> well, you can't purr applause, but she's doing it. Just like her tail is conscious. Uh, or the tail is conscious of what she's doing. Um, And I want to say that this is actually probably the actual description of the cat Um, because tortoise vying, um, there's a kind of cat uh, fur style called tortoise shell. It's more commonly known as calico. And apparently it's genetically linked to the sex of the cats. So only female cats uh, get this in almost every case. And uh, so if you said it's a tortoiseshell cat, um, it also lends us the idea that, you know, tortoises are the turtles that don't swim. Right? <laughs> um, the cat is going in after these uh, wonderful maids in the water, um, these uh, naiads, as it were. Um, but we get a full description of her, her body from her tail to her face. She has white on her chin. Uh, her paws are velvet. Her coat looks like a tortoise shell. Her ears are black, jet, and her eyes are green. And we, so we're getting a picture. It's a beautiful picture. And then the punishment. <laughs> Next stanza, you want to do that one? Actually, I don't want to go stanza by stanza. Okay. I'd, I'd like to offer an overview of, of a, a way of reading this. Sure. Um, the term favorite with a capital F was used of someone like Madame Pompadour. It's it's someone who is the favorite of the king or the fa- yep. it, it's u- usually a woman who is of uh, high station, but her station is entirely dependent upon her pleasing some man of authority. Right, and that includes the fact that she is herself quite comely. And this beautiful description you've given us of Selima, uh, you've reminded us of Selima, she is a favorite. This is, a, this is all a guide to favorites. There is a connection made between cats and uh, humans. So when we get in the penultimate stanza, no dolphin came, no nereid stirred, nor cruel Tom, nor Susan heard. You know, you would think, ah, no cruel Tom. So Tom cats, we know that a Tom is a mm-hmm. cat. So I'm talking, oh, was a Susan a, a female cat? Well, no. In fact, a Susan isn't a female cat. No. A Molly is, but not a Susan. So what, what Gray is doing is 
making us think we're talking about cats, but also making clear that we're talking about humans. So a favorite has no friend. It's true that many cats show a streak of independence, although their their waving tails may consciously uh, show their pleasure and their purring may sound like applause as if they were part of a group. Um, but favorites have no friends. Uh, what does that mean? It means that you die alone, that if all you want is avarice, you know, if, if you're avaricious, I want gold. You can see the gold through the Tyrian hue on the scales of these fish. Uh, I want gold. Then, in fact, that can cost you your life. This is not just to say, you know, don't go after things that have less value than they seem. It does have that. That's that's uh, a moral for a child. But there's something else here. It's, I think, remember, if that's what you value, you will be friendless and you will die alone. But back to the the, the human and, uh, and uh, feline uh, interpenetration amalgam, you notice that when Selima falls into the lake, um, Eight times emerging from the flood, oh, yeah. she mewed to every watery god some speedy aid to send, right? But then she dies. In other words, unlike a human, but like a cat, she has nine lives. Mm-hmm. And it's only when the ninth one drowns that she's really dead. Uh, so th- there are all kinds of playful references here uh, to the, 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 uh, the use of the Nereid, for example, a, a Greek mythological uh, goddess of the river um, or semi-goddess of the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there are references here uh, that would make us think that this fits within a kind of exoticism, the Chinese vase, um, it fits within mythology, it fits ultimately in a well-known proverb, all the glisters is not gold. Mm-hmm. Um, it would seem as if, you know, it's all playful. But you look at it and despite the fact that the art has died on the vase, we can see into it. It is not a standoff between Selima and a goldfish. There are two goldfish, mm-hmm. just as just as Selima represents two natures, right? The human and the feline. And as beautiful as she is, I love the fact that you are so responsive to this this uh, description. As beautiful as she is, um, she's being criticized for living that life of beauty. Um, she stretched in vain to reach the prize. What female heart can gold <laughs> despise? Yep. Right. Right. It doesn't say female cat. Right. It says female. So. Women are being looked down upon if all they want is to be gold diggers. And in fact, if you succeed at it by becoming a favorite, the fact that there's some guy who likes you, don't expect anyone else to want to help you. This is, I think, um, taking that phrase, nor all that glisters gold, which seems to be about money. All right. Not everything that looks valuable is valuable. Right? Mm-hmm. Not everything. Right? It seems to be about money. In fact, it is saying the thing that seems to be valuable that is, in fact, is not is beauty. And it seems to me 
that that notion that beauty is in fact um, something that we display on that Chinese vase that we keep fish exotically so that they will look attractive right? beauty is in fact just another commodity for those in power and in fact what you need to survive are friends I think this is a social commentary it's about what it means to think you're gonna get along just fine because after all you're pretty um, I I, as I say, I think this is a pretty serious poem. It It, it is, um, especially if you think about, like, one, one of the, I was mentioning um, Walpole had uh, a dog. Um, dog. The dog was named Tauntaun, um, and he inherited it um, when a friend of his uh, willed it to him upon her death, and he was supposed to take a whole bunch of other stuff too, but he only took the dog. And the dog was not housebroken, and <laughs> the dog bit people, but he took it anyways. Um, and then we find out that his, of course, um, his one of his two cats drowned <laughs> going after some of his goldfish, um, mm -hmm. and he had a squirrel <laughs> as a pet. So this is a guy who is intimately tied up with his relationship with pets, and he writes to his friend, uh, my, my cat died trying to get the goldfish. Um, I wasn't there to save her. Um, and uh, none of the other pets came to the rescue is the implication. And um, that's how, that's like, if, if Tauntaun's owner, a woman, uh, you know, a rich woman who didn't bother to make the dog poop outside, um, but rather had servants to clean it up, and didn't scold the dog for biting people. Uh, the only person who she could get to take it was somebody in this very similar position, right? There's a kind of um, criticism of of being a favorite for sure in here. But um, it's, it was funny to me when I read the uh, original and discovered that there was a a stanza missing. I was, why did they take that stanza out? I can understand abridging the title, Ode to the Death of a Favorite Cat Drowned in a Tub of Goldfishes. It's quite a long title. But why take out a stanza and why that one? And I, I was thinking maybe it's because it's a, a magazine for both boys and girls. And there is a criticism of females in that stanza. The hapless nymph with wonder saw a whisker first and then a claw with many an ardent wish she stretched in vain to reach the prize what female heart can gold despise that is not uh unique to cats that's uh all females and because there's so much conflation in this poem between uh women and cats and mermaids and and fish and naiads and nymphs uh and it's made very explicit in the illustrations by Blake. Uh, you have half cats, half women, women looking into the water and seeing, or a cat looking into the water and seeing a woman down there in her reflection. And then sometimes the fish are angels and sometimes they are uh, fish and sometimes they are fish with angels riding on them. 
so there is a duality to the poem, and in the end, uh, one <laughs> there's one image, the final image, is that of a ghost of a woman rising up out of the water, uh, and two regular goldfish, no no particular, uh, you know, non fishy nature to them in the water swimming along happily. Those two fish away, away have from each the other. Ghost. Yes, away yeah, from but the away from the ghost. Away it's from the ghost. It's as if they, you know, their job is done. They've lured the cat into the lake and drowned it. <laughs> now they can go about their business. Uh, you, you're you're saying the cat's entrapping them by being so delicious. <laughs> well, to a real cat, it would be delicious. But for Gray, they are not there. As food, they're there because of their gold. Mm, mm-hmm. According to Gray, it's the sight of them mm-hmm. uh, rather than the taste of them that is attracting Selima. Selima, by the way, uh, whether or not um, Walpole had a cat named Selima is not relevant to most readers of the poem because most wouldn't know and they wouldn't know anything about Walpole. Um, but Selima is, in fact, an Arabic name mm-hmm. that means to be safe. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, I, I think the, um, the various depictions uh, by Blake showing the cat, uh, sometimes with a woman riding upon her back, sometimes half woman, sometimes dressed like a woman, uh, sometimes just a woman, and then just a cat um, is wonderful. But there's also, and I think it would be less easy to see without Blake pointing us to it, fate is a woman who is there looking in distress on the fourth page, looking as the cat looks at the water, and then delighted on the fifth page as she helps the cat, the, cat who is now a woman into the water <laughs> indeed she is one of the three faiths you see she's holding the scissors mm-hmm. with which you snip the uh, the thread of life mm-hmm. um, so Blake has picked up exactly what Gray has made available that all of this particular story has mythological significance as well as social significance in other words something as simple as the accidental death of a cat will provide a reality to the observation that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.